All right, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you today. Well, okay, so we are, we are, we made the bold move last week to em- embark into chapter three of Jonah. So um, we're moving right along, and uh, as they say, yeah, moving right along, as they say. And uh, so let's, let's, Jonah 3 is short, so let's just look at it again, just to get the, refresh our minds here. So Jonah chapter 3 reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And this is chapter 3. So, looking at this, this is quite a chapter, and it's exactly what Jonah had feared um, initially. It's a great Lenten text, you know, if you think about that, right? What, you know... How providential, I guess, that we've gone the pace that we've gone, and now here we are in Lent, and now here they are uh, fasting and, you know, in this repentant state. And, you know, just as a reminder, this great city, Nineveh, uh, was built by Nimrod. So, you know, if you were to go back and read Genesis chapter 12, verses 8 through 12, you'd see that aspect of it. So it's, it's a city with, a, with an old history. As we mentioned last week, it's the three days journey across the land. And so you can see all kinds of things in that, right? And predominantly the passion of our Savior, the three days journey from beginning to finish. It is in a sense, like going through hell again. It's, it's like Jonah in the fish for three days. So you have this spiritual journey with the three days. 
But then in verse 4, it says here that Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. So he enters it after first day walk. And this parallels Elijah's one day walk in the wilderness from 1 Kings 19.4. Then you have it mentioned in verse 4, he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So when you think of a period of 40 in the Bible, what kinds of things come to mind? What's that? One, one and a half months. Say that one more time. One and a half months. One and a half months, yes. And so what, what kinds of things happened in, in that period elsewhere in the Bible? Yep, 40 days in the, yeah, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. 40 days in the flood. Yeah. There's, was there anything else? 40 years for Israel, wandering in the wilderness. Yep. Judgment, yeah. Jesus, and somebody said it, 40 days in the wilderness. I assume you were thinking about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, the 40 days of fasting and temptation. Yeah. And really, like, what happens with Jesus there in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights really gets to the heart of it because the devil shows himself and tempts him and tries to twist scripture. And then also, so you have Noah's flood, Exodus 24, 18. If we look at that, if you start kind of at uh, Exodus 24, verse 16, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So there's another one. And then now go to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4 verse 6. So little bit of context here is he says the Lord says you also son of man take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray it on it a city Jerusalem lay siege against it build a siege wall against it heap up a mound against it set camps against it also place battering rams against it take for yourself an iron plate set it as an iron wall between you and the city set your face against it and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel, 
And then he says to him, lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days. So you shall bear the house, the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. So there's that 40 as well, which um, is more subtle. We don't think about that one. What is at work with this notion of 40? What's the spiritual connotation to all of this? What, when there's a 40-day period or a 40-year period, what is the Lord doing? Say that. Helping them have patience. Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of this patience, this, you know, this theme I, I love to talk about, the slowness of God. And the slowness of God, he teaches us patience. He is also teaching us into holiness. And it's a time of deep reflection, right? Can you imagine being on... Noah's Ark with all that going on and just, you know, the thoughts of what's going to happen, right? Like that's a faith thing. You know, there's all this rain and things are getting crazy and it's not stopping and you're on the boat and there's all these animals and there's eight of you and you can't do any, you're sitting in the boat for 40 days and 40 nights while it's raining like crazy and that is, you know, think about the pace of our culture and how we are always moving. And, and I think part of it is, I think there's a dimension to this where it's easier to be busy because if you stop and sit, then what happens? You have to think. And, and sometimes the things that come... Exactly. There's things we don't want to think about. And so it's easier in our society just to keep moving all the time and never stopping. Because then we don't have to stop and reflect. So 40 days and 40 nights or 40 years, a time of deep reflection, it can be very painful. And yet we learn so much. You know, this slowness of God is, is critical for our own growth in wisdom. And, you know, the Proverbs talk about this a little bit in, in different places. Like, for example, uh, see if I can find it. There's a verse that Probably not going to be able to find it right now. But the verse basically says something to the effect of um, the wise foresee danger and they hide themselves, but the simple pass on. Oh, here it is. It's uh, Proverbs 27, 12. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, 
the simple pass on and are punished. And uh, 22, Proverbs 22.3 says the same thing. And that's true, right? Like the, the prudent or the wise see danger and they hide themselves. So there's this sense of taking a step back. It's a spiritual posture where things are swirling about, right? You know, maybe you've heard Pastor Bruzek talk about how, you know, the devil likes to use flash bombs and it makes a big bang and a big noise and a big blast of light and, you know, it rattles people, it happens quickly. But the wise and discerning see it for what it is, and instead of like rushing in to react, the wise take a step back and assess prayerfully what, what is going on. And, you know, it is precisely in that way then that the character and the contours of what's going on begin to change. You, or maybe our perspective begins to change. We start to see things as they really are. You know, the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us helps us to discern what is really happening. And so the notion of 40 days, 40 nights, or 40 years is meant to be a time for that. It's the slowness of God where we, we reflect on all that has happened and what's happened to us, what we have done. It can be painful if we don't understand the gospel. But if we understand the gospel and the, the faithfulness of our Lord and his mercy and his love, then it changes. It's an opportunity for us to grow and find peace in the midst of the things that we don't want to think about. And there is a verse in, and I'm probably not going to be able to find this, but I was, there's a verse in, I think, 1 Peter, where he talks about the patience of God, the patience of Jesus in terms of salvation. Now, where is that? Hmm. I'm not going to be able to find it, but if anybody else finds it, you can, you can let me know. But you know, he talks about the, the patience of the Lord and the gift of salvation. And this is exactly what the Lord does, is in His slowness, Let's see. What is it? Um, let me see. Okay, so let's see. First Peter three twenty. Okay, it's not that one, but then you said Second Peter. Yeah, here it is. Yes, this is it. This is so beautiful. And even in the Greek, I mean, it is... 
is so good. Yeah, Second Peter three fifteen. It is so good. It, you know, it's so. Let's just read it and think about. It. So start at verse fourteen. So this is at the end of the epistle. And you know, the chapter starts by talking about how. Boy, I mean, we could just be at this forever, just looking at this because, you know, he's, he's talking about at the beginning of chapter three. The slowness of God. You know, like uh, in verse four, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So we're back to the flood, right? So we're talking about this, this period of testing and reflection. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, you know, you see this with God's posture towards the Ninevites. And you've, I've, I've put this on the board for you before, this, this word for long-suffering is macrothemia. And so this is that concept of, you know, here's anger or passion, the root word themia, but then macro is the word for like macroeconomics, micro, you know, microeconomics is small, macroeconomics is stretched out. <clears throat> and so the long suffering in verse nine is this word and then if you read on and you look at the verse that I was thinking about and start at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord <clears throat> is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures." So, looking at that carefully, verse 15, consider that the patience of the Lord is salvation. So, again in verse 15, it's this word, macrothemia. <clears throat> and if my memory serves me 
well this morning, the Hebrew equivalent is often seen as slow to anger. And it is, the, the Hebrew word for slow to anger is a, provides us with a rare physical description of what God looks like. Slow to anger in Hebrew literally means long of nose. So then if you look at like the ancient icons of Christ and you see the long nose depicted in the icon, that's a theological statement in those icons that Jesus is slow to anger. So you look at an icon and you see the long nose and then you think about 2 Peter 3.15. And that's your savior. Yes, Carol. I think about... Uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm. where the Lord went from 50 to 40 to 30, down to 10, mm-hmm. that he, he, he repented of his own like command, and it seems like he repented here too, mm-hmm. of destroying Nineveh. Mm-hmm. I guess I never thought the Lord would change his mind. <laughs> right, right. Well, and that's, that's, that's a powerful thing to think about, too, that, you know, the Lord hears our prayers. And so, you know, he's not like a, right? He's not this disconnected computer mainframe that, you know, just does what it does. And, but he hears our prayers. And so we are to pray, and he, he will hear us, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good rendering of it. The Lord's patience means salvation. Yeah, and think about that for, for us, right? Go back to the things that you don't, the reasons why you want to keep busy and not sit and stop and think. You don't want to sit and stop and think because then you think about all the things you should have done that you didn't do or the things that you should not have done that you did do. (laughs) And then you start to go, oh, I need to keep busy and keep my mind at something else. But the reality is, is when the gospel is at the front of the 40 days and the 40 nights, your answer is 2 Peter 3.15. The Lord is patient. And the Lord's patience means salvation. And that's what the Lord has for you. So when you think about, don't fear slowing down. Don't fear contemplating. Because it is a gift from God that you are able to slow down and think about things which if you do recall sins and failures, it's a great opportunity to repent and ask Christ for forgiveness and you have it. You are forgiven. Um, Repentance in Greek is metanaeo and again, the root word 
naeo is like mind, and so in the Greek world, this was the seat of wisdom. The, the mind was the seat of wisdom in the Greek world. And then this prefix means to have a turnabout. So it's an opportunity to turn around. So it, even though it's very painful, it is such a blessing to think about those difficult things that you don't want to think about. Without the gospel, it would be terrifying and it would be a disaster. But with the cross of Christ, his passion, his suffering, death, and resurrection, it is an opportunity to cast all those sins away and to know that you have the peace of Christ now. You know, when you think about Jonah, and I mentioned this last week, Luther's theology of the cross is foundational for our doctrine of vocation. So you think about vocation, you think about it in terms of Jonah, and Jonah sees great difficulty in all of this. And yet he, part of his vocation as a prophet is that God says, go preach to these people. And the, the cross for him is that he has to go do what he doesn't want to do. And the vocation, as Luther describes it, is for this world. So, you know, when we get to heaven, Luther says, we won't have these vocations. They're just for here. And Luther says that our vocations here on earth are meant specifically for our neighbors, those around us. And Luther says that in your vocation, you don't get to choose your cross. It's given to you. And he says it's very difficult. All the way, it's very difficult. And yet, God places you where he places you specifically so that you will bless the lives of the people around you. And the struggle with, if you mix the theology of the cross and Luther's doctrine of vocation, uh, what you end up with is often feeling like you are incapable of doing what you're supposed to do. And that in and of itself can cause a lot of angst. Um, you know, pick the vocation, right? It could be, you know, helping a spouse through something. It could be trying to raise children. Uh, it could be working a difficult job that every day is just filled with stress and how am I supposed to do this? And, you know, it could be being a Christian in this culture today and the difficulty of speaking and defending our faith in the midst of a contrary culture. Who wants to do that? 
it's easier to go sit on the beach and drink a margarita and say, all that stuff, gone. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's not bad to do a respite and do that, by the way. But, but then you know you got to go back, right? But, you know, this, in, in a way, the Christian life, in terms of vocation, is very much like the 40-day time. And again, similarly with some of the other things I mentioned, without the gospel, without Jesus at the front, the, cross we, the crosses we bear in our vocations would be too much for us. And this is why it's so important to get this right. Like, you know, I, we've, we've talked about the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, right? And the theology of glory, which we see so much in Christian circles, is if I believe right, then I'll be prosperous, I'll be blessed, my kids will be great, my job will be great, I'll make a lot of money, I'll have peace all the time. I'll be able to sit and sip margaritas all the time on the beach because God's blessing my life and everything's in perfect order, right? That's a false theology, Luther says. The true theology is the theology of the cross. And the theology of the cross is you may believe right, you may live right, Your kids may struggle. You may have a hard time with work. Money may be tough. Maybe you have health issues. Work's killing you. But a good perspective adjustment, though, with the cross, and, you know, it's, it's hard to impose, you know, you can't really impose into the text what's not there. We pull out of it. But I do wonder a little bit, having said that, I wonder a little bit, like Jonah's perspective at the beginning of the book was more, seems to be more inward focused, right? Like this is what he wants. He wants the Ninevites to die. He, he wants to go off in the other direction. You know, that would be easier. And so he's thinking about his vocation as a prophet one way but as luther talks about vocation it's an outward thing so when i'm placed somewhere in my vocation it's not about me i'm not there to achieve certain things but i am placed there in order to care for other people and God has put me there. And he, here's the comfort in that. If God has put you in a vocation, he's placed you in a certain spot with people around you to, for you to be a blessing to them, then this is God's order. And in God's order, he will bless, he will, he will bless it. And he will care for you through it. He will see you through it.
the inward focus perspective of here I'm doing this and that and here are the things that I can gain from it. The danger from that is we lose the sight of Christ. And that's when fear comes in. Because if you're thinking about your vocation from the standpoint of this is what I can gain and this is what I can do and this is what I can achieve and this is what can be the result, now fear comes in because what's the fear? Well, if I lose this position, then I lose all those attributes I seek. Now you're alone and you sit in fear alone. So the Lutheran doctrine of vocation in conjunction with the theology of the cross takes away all of that. Now, the beautiful thing is, in your vocations that God has given, put you in, he will bless you, he will take care of you, you will find goodness in those vocations, but they come by the hand of Christ and they are sustained by him. We're not focused on them. So this is, if, if nothing else, implied and subtle within the book of Jonah, that you can see the difference. At the beginning, he's got his own idea in mind. He's, fear, you know, he's fearful of what could happen. He ends up in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He's, in a sense, suffers and dies. Now he is trekking across in this three-day journey and it's, now it's going to look different. Now the Ninevites are in their 40-day and 40-night time of reflection. So 2 Peter 3.15, yes. It was kind of a little bit uh, harsh um, uh, proclamation of his face. You know, that they, he was so angry about them. Yes, he was so angry about them. So successful on the other hand. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't expect it. Right, exactly. Yes. Oh, and I noticed uh, in chapter 3, it says that, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And the first verse, it says the word came to him. Yeah. Um, and he, it wasn't until he prayed and um, listened to the Lord yeah. that he followed. He knew that that's what he had to do. Well, that, that's a good reminder of what we talked about. Yes, that, you know, in chapter two, as we, as we looked at it, that it is like a temple experience. You know, he's, he's got his face toward the temple in his, his prayer sounds an awful lot like a psalm. And so, you know, there's this reflection and this repentance. And then in chapter three, the word of the Lord came to him. And then he goes, right, and it happens according to the word of the Lord. So, you know, what Donna points out is very important that it is the word of the Lord at the center of it all. So then in verse 5, so back to Jonah 3, verse 5, it says that the people of Nineveh believed God. That's the first thing. So notice what happens here. 
The peop- and look at the order. The people of Nineveh believed God and then they proclaimed a fast and then put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So the people believed God. We see this irony in the Bible, even in this sense here in the Old Testament, that the Gentiles listen. And there are a few passages that speak in this way. So Ezekiel 3, verses 5 to 7. Look at this. So, starting at verse 4, maybe. So, Ezekiel 3, verse 4. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech, so that'd be the Gentiles, unfamiliar speech, and of hard language but to the house of Israel, not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. Wow. I mean, that... Imagine the Jewish audience listening to this in the temple. I mean, that's a point of reflection. Imagine the Pharisees in Jesus' day sitting in the synagogue and listening to this. What would they think? And then you go to the New Testament. You go to Matthew 11, 21 and 22. It's the same thing. This is starting, so Matthew 11, start at verse 20. Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They didn't have the metanoeo. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So there you go. And there's another one. Yeah. And then we've seen this where uh, in chapter, Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 42, he then does reference Jonah in that situation. So, in verse 5, seeing, the, seeing pagans, or, or maybe to say it better, seeing the Gentiles come to faith defies reason. It is like what Jesus says in Matthew 17, verse 20, where he says, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind of thing does not go out 
except by prayer and fasting. So a little context to that verse, you always wonder, like, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you could move mountains, and that's like one of those hard sayings, like, what in the world is he saying? You know, if I stand out in the middle of woods and say, do this, will it do it? You know, do I not have faith because nothing's happening out there? No, he's talking about a situation like Nineveh, a powerful people that are so completely lost. And yet, you go and preach to it. And to everyone's surprise, they listen. That's a comforting thing, right? Think about the context of what's happening in our world today and in our nation and how the, you know, the secular presses against the Christian faith and continues to do so and seems to be growing in strength and the churches and the Christians think, what's going to happen? Nothing looks good here. I see no good in this situation. I just see that it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But what does the church do? We pray. We pr right? Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you and abuse you. Why? Because we trust that the unthinkable can happen. That the train wreck we see coming down the pike could actually be averted. The Lord can do great things. And this is what we see with the Ninevites. So they called a fast. So when we think about the words in verse 5, the order, so they believed. Let me, go, let me go back to that, get this order again. So the people of Nineveh believed God. That's the first thing. So what they do is from faith. And the Greek, the Greek is beautiful at that point. The, so the word for believed, let me, let me jot this down on the, on the board here. So this Greek word is N-A-Pistoison. And so there's a couple of things going on in this word. So the thing about Greek is, as you can see here, it, it loves a root word that gives you the sense of what's going on. And then there's often prefixes and then there's suffixes. So this right here is pistoio, which is to believe. And then the, the suffix at the end tells you like the you know, the person and whether it's singular or plural. So it's third plural. But then 
here's this little letter right here says that it's past tense or aorist tense. But then this little prefix right here, N, indicates that they're not believing on their own right or their own strength, but that the word, something has come in. So it's N epistoison. So the N, the prefix, suggests that something comes in towards the people. And then takes up space with them. So the idea is that their belief is from based on the word of God that comes and lands in their midst. So, you know, here you are. Old Testament, Jonah, prophet, hard-hearted nation, and the word of God comes from the prophet's mouth and the word lands among the people and it causes them to believe. So think about that for the church in the world today. We should pray as often as we are able or think about it, pray for the world, pray for the nations, Pray for our nation. Pray for our government. Um, pray for the people outside that do not understand Jesus or church. And, and ask the Lord to provide a way for the word to come and land in the midst of the people that they too may find the comfort which we have, you know, I can speak, you know, of my own, my own life that I was a hard-hearted atheist and I just didn't like any of it. And I, I was one, I was one of those antagonists and by the grace of God, the Lord, the gospel came to me and, and I found the comfort of the gospel in the church. And um, so the Lord does amazing things. And we have good examples in the text, in the scriptures that show us all the time. And it's often comes with a surprise. So there's that believing part but then you have, after the believing, the proclaiming of a fast. So the proclaiming of the fast is suggesting that the belly repents. And then sackcloth, which is an outward form of repentance, which is to become poor. Imagine a wealthy king of a Gentile nation that like this king that was set in a completely different way of living and practicing and he's used to his kingly robes sitting on a high throne enjoying the niceties of being a king to now all of a sudden sitting with everyone else regardless of rank because you know that didn't happen in, in the ancient world. You didn't cross rank. 
That did not happen. I mean, even in today's world in, in other countries, like if you go to places in Africa or places in South America, there is something called uh, convivence. And, you know, in, in some societies, uh, social structure and order is impenetrable. So if you're a high official in some societies, you don't cross in with the poor. You don't sit and dine with the poor. There's these separations that are cultural and societal. But in some of these, in some of these societies, they have something co called con convivence, which is there will be a time set aside where officials and leaders or rulers will sit and dine with the common folk. And it is precisely in that setting where they will sit and talk to one another as equals. And it's a time of communal fellowship in a sense. And then after the convenience, then they go back to their societal structure. And you think about Nineveh and these societal structures would have been really strong. So the fact that the king declares a fast and says, we're all gonna sit down and put on sackcloth and ashes, everyone, even the beasts of the field, he's breaking down the Ninevite structure. That is huge. And that is, you know, you see this in different places, like, you know, when we went through the, the account of Naaman, the Syrian, the leper, and he goes to Elisha, and, you know, all that happens, you remember that. But, you know, do you remember that in that text, over and over, the servants are telling Naaman what to do? That wouldn't happen. But what you're seeing is the beginning of, you're seeing ripples of the coming of Jesus where he reorders everyone. And we are equal in Christ. So that's happening with the sackcloth. And so then after the sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them, you have verse 6. The word came to the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And there were a few other kings that did this in the Old Testament. Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32.26. Josiah in 2 Kings 22, 19 and 20. Ahab in 1 Kings 21, 20 and 21. And let's go to that, 1 Kings 21. Is it a miracle because they live without drink for 40 days? Well, that's... 
You know, that's one of those, I was thinking about that too. You know, with fasting today, and I wonder, right, like how could you actually do that, right? Um, There must have been, and I'm just sort of, kind of guessing because I'm, I'm, I didn't see any information about this, but you know, you have to think that at least in, with Jesus, it's 40 days and 40 nights of, of pure fasting. Um, and he had the strength to do it. But perhaps with these folks, maybe there was a, a time of, of resting from that, maybe. I mean, yeah, it makes you wonder, right? How could that but at any rate, so First Kings twenty-one. I mean, because don't like when the Amish fast, don't they take a break? It's only from like morning until supper or something. Yes. And then they can eat in the yeah, the Amish do do something like that, and but also in the, but also in the church, right? When we fast, like in our Lenten fast, there are breaks. You know. Yeah, there are little breaks. Sunday, Pastor Bruce said that Sunday you don't have to That's right. Sunday is the break fast, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Because of the resurrection, what about before there was a resurrection? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like you say, maybe it's Sabbath too. Yes, Sabbath maybe, and yeah, could be. Yeah. But at any rate, so, you know, you can read this on your own if you have a little bit of time, but 1 Kings 21, the Lord condemns Ahab and the word of the Lord came, came to Elijah the Tishbite. So this is 1 Kings 21, 17 and says, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him saying, Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O enemy? <laughs> That's quite a... You, know, you, can, you can imagine why Elijah was a little nervous. And he answered, I found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And then he talks about Jezebel. But then in verse 27... So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Why? Well, it's, I think because he repented, the Lord relented, but then his son would not. Yeah. And he knew, the Lord knew that, that his son would not. Yeah. I didn't think that like people were punished. 
Right. Like our kids are punished for what we do. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a bigger conversation. <laughs> Based on the, the, the words in Exodus, right, with the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we are uh, at our stopping point. So we will continue uh, with verse 7 uh, next week. So let's close with the collect and uh, benediction. O Almighty and Eternal God, we implore you to direct, sanctify, and govern our hearts and bodies in the ways of your laws and the works of your commandments, that through your mighty protection, both now and ever, we may be preserved in body and soul. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.